We've all seen the bumper stickers that say, think globally, act locally. Now this slogan certainly helped define a generation of grassroots activity, but US plaintiff lawyers have completely flipped this saying on its head by thinking locally and acting globally. You see, they've taken the local concept of US class actions and exported it globally around the world. In today's episode, we're gonna talk about the United Kingdom and a massive decision that came out just in the last week that's effectively opened the floodgates to US style class actions in that country. There's trouble brewing across the pond, and today we're here to talk about it. I'm Harold Kim, and this is Cause for Action. Cause for Action is brought to you by the US Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, the leading legal reform advocate in the US and around the globe. Learn more at instituteforlegalreform.com. What's up, everyone? It's Harold Kim, president of the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, with our very first international episode of Cause for Action. Now, long-time followers of ILR know that we advocate for legal reforms here in the U.S., but we also engage around the globe. And today, we're going to be talking about how U.S.-style class actions are on the verge of exploding on the scene in the United Kingdom. What's considered by many as the birthplace of our common law traditions, the U.K. legal system could now be viewed as the litigation playground for U.S. class action lawyers and third-party litigation funders. This could be especially true given last week's U.K. Supreme Court decision that came down against MasterCard in the Merrick's decision. And to help us break this all down, my guest today is Kenny Henderson, one of the premier defense lawyers in the U.K. and throughout Europe. Kenny is a partner at CMS London, where he represents businesses in multi-jurisdictional cases and is very active in the developing area of class actions, or collective actions as they call it, in the United Kingdom. He's acted on both the claimant and defendant side on some of the largest antitrust litigation matters in Europe. And before joining CMS, Kenny litigated in the London office of Covington and Burling. Welcome, Kenny. Thanks a lot for joining us on this very first international podcast. Hi, Harold. Uh, nice to be here. Yeah, nice to see you and to hear you. Uh, so why don't we dive right into this, Kenny? Uh, we're talking about this UK Supreme Court decision that came out just last week. Everybody's been carefully waiting for this decision to come down. It's the Merrick's decision in a huge, huge damages claim against MasterCard. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision and what it means for class actions or collective actions in the United Kingdom? Yeah, sure. Of course, Harold. Uh, I mean, this is a, a, an enormous case. It made the national press. It's one of these claims that, you know, occasionally makes it to the national press. And in fact, of course, the international press, it is that huge. Uh, the plaintiff's lawyers state that the value of the claim is £14 billion and the class size is an estimated 46 million people in the UK. It's absolutely enormous. Uh, the class definition in broad terms is anyone who between May 1992 and June 2008 purchased goods or services from a business in the UK that accepted MasterCard. And so it is difficult to imagine a broader or larger claim. It is part of um, sprawling interchange fee litigation where, of course, there have been huge claims in the US as well. <laughs> and where MasterCard is accused of breaching antitrust law in how interchange fees are set and those are essentially part of the fees that are borne by a retailer in accepting MasterCard or other similar credit or debit cards and then elements of those charges are then passed on initially to the merchant and there's some complexity as well and question mark over 
the extent to which those fees are then passed on to, uh, to consumers. Now, the Merricks and MasterCard case is being brought under the UK's uh, uh, specific and brought in in 2015 statutory mechanism, statutory device for, for bringing antitrust class actions. So we're, we're, still, we're still quite new in the UK's regime. Um, certification, we call them in the UK a collective proceedings order. Certification was rejected uh, initially by the first instance court, the Competition Appeals Tribunal. The Court of Appeal uh, essentially reversed the decision of the Competition Appeals, Appeals Tribunal, said that the Court of the, the, the cats had applied too exacting a standard, and the Supreme Court went went further. In fact, uh, it, it sided with the Court of Appeal, but it actually went a little bit further than the Court of Appeal in its reasoning. So that's the kind of the broad background, and I'm sure we'll get into some of the tests in a little bit. But that's where we're up to so far. Well, it seems as though when you look at the CPO or certification process, there are at least three benchmarks that have to be met. For example, is the is the claim suitable? Uh, is it um, representative? Uh, I guess is a is another term. And then um, you know, is there commonality? And there's some elements of this that are very similar to uh, our own Rule 23. You know, you have to have some common types of claims in order for the claimants to band together. So, can you tell us a little bit about some of the 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 uh, major assessments by the UK Supreme Court when it comes to commonality? Because you know, this is an interchange case, as you mentioned, but it's interesting because it's not being brought by merchants, it's the consumers, the 46 million consumers or, you know, this massive amount of people. And if that's the case, is the commonality here, in at least at least one of the issues about how those costs were passed, out, passed on by the merchants to the consumers and how do you create the type of commonality under those circumstances? And was that an issue considered by the UK Supreme Court? Yes, uh, absolutely. So, I, I, as you say, uh, this was a, a, you know, an indirect purchaser claim, um, which is, uh, you know, I understand in the US under federal law, indirect purchasers don't have standing. In Europe, um, everybody downstream of an infringer has got standing. Right. The question is, it's, it's one of economic analysis. You know, to what extent was any overcharge, um, you know, felt by those downstream? Um so, so, so the mere fact that we have standing for indirect purchasers makes things a lot more complicated sure. from the get from the get go. As to the standards that we have, the, the tests that we have in the UK system, you're absolutely right. There's three broad questions. Um, <clears throat> the first one pertains to the representative, the the the. the the, the class leader, shall we say. Now, that, that, that um, the representative doesn't even have to be a member of the class, in fact, which is an immediate digression from uh, the US. But the courts will, the Competition Appeals Tribunal, will have to have a look to, to whether or not that person is suitable. And what we've seen so far, and we've had a number of rulings on this even before this Supreme Court decision, We've, got, we've now got a bit of a, 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 an identifiable pathway for determining whether a representative is appropriate or not, whether or not they're able to instruct the lawyers, whether or not they've got an understanding of the issues. So we, mm -hmm. we see quite a lot of professionals being involved. And so Mr. Merricks is a, a financial ombudsman in the UK. You know, he, he's very knowledgeable about these issues, clearly capable of giving instructions to the law firm. The other part of 
suitability of the representative and whether or not the representative is appropriate or not uh, goes down to costs. You know, in the UK, we have a very strict cost shifting rules. And so the representative bears adverse cost risk if the claim fails. And so that's quite a divergence, of course, from the US. Sure, we call, that, we call that loser pays in the US. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, if you were a representative and, you know, uh, in the middle of one of these claims, this, that's probably a fairly terrifying prospect of being potentially liable for millions of pounds in adverse costs under, uh, you know, a loser pays approach. And it's not capped either. Uh, you know, in, in much of continental Europe, cost shifting rules are capped. And um, uh, so these can be very, very large figures. And the way that is addressed is through insurance, adverse costs insurance. And that is quite an expensive product. And that's where the litigation funders come in. Interesting. And so, yeah. And so what we've seen in relation to examining the eligibility of the representative is the courts really kicking the tires on the funding and whether or not there's sufficient money to bring the claim to, through to trial and whether or not there's sufficient insurance. They've given some leeway to the claimant side as well. They've, they've kind of stamped these cases through for now, but they've looked at those issues. But that's where we've got quite a lot of certainty now. The Merricks and MasterCard case up to the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court have been about the other two criteria, uh, which are, as you say, commonality and also suitability, whether the case itself has got sufficient common issues, uh, whether it meets the commonality test and whether or not it meets the suitability test. Yep. Now, on commonality, we don't have, like you have in the US, for damages claims a requirement that common issues must predominate over individual claims. The question is whether they raise the same, similar, or related issues of fact or law. That's our commonality test. On the suitability test, um, it's it's really it, it, what what we have is the rules have said that the tribunal has has to look at a number of factors, but also those list of factors are non-exhaustive, so it can consider other factors. But those list of factors include the size and nature of the claim, whether the claim is suitable for an aggregate award of damages, and, and that's where the battlegrounds have been so far. But really, what we're seeing is not just what the tests are but how the tribunal is to apply those tests. That's what the, that's what the Supreme Court ju judgment is about, is how should the tribunal assess whether or not the commonality and the suitability test have been met? Well, you know, the, there's one term in the opinion that really jumps out, and that is multifactorial balancing exercise. What does that mean? <laughs> Well, I think that that is one that it's a, it's a nice uh, turn of phrase. It's to look at things in the round. And that is a part of the judgment where also the, 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 um, the court says it's not likely to be assumed that the, the judgment and the, the, the new procedure is intended to put more legal and procedural constraints in the way of individual claims. And that was kind of an, an immediate warning side in the judgment that they're, they're seeing this as a relatively low threshold. Yeah. And there were two judges who gave, they weren't formally, they weren't formally um, dissenting judgments, but they, they, they raised a note of alarm and a note of caution that the approach that the Supreme Court took in Merricks 
really you know kind of removes and and, and makes it you know, you know there's a question mark over a certification approach that is set at too low a level because then there aren't enough cases that are actually ruled to be inappropriate and so this kind of assumption or this assumption that there shouldn't be additional hurdles over above individual claims is a it was an initial early warning uh, signal that they're 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 taking a fairly permissive approach to certification well you know what i found interesting about uh this particular case is that one of the justices i believe his name was brian kerr actually passed away unfortunately uh, right before the decision came down would would these unfortunate set of circumstances tilted the decision in a different outcome or would it have been the same? No, they, they, they wouldn't have changed because uh, Lord Kerr was with the, you know, there was a majority in favor of Mr. Merrick's and against MasterCard. And, and as you say, he sadly died just a couple of days before judgment was initially planned to be handed down. So uh, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. But, you know, we ended up with, you know, it was three versus two and a different composition of the bench could have come to a different outcome. But, you know, his, his untimely death didn't, didn't impact that. So I guess procedurally the next, the next move is this is getting basically remanded back to the CAT or CAT as you call it. But I guess the, the other question is how will the plaintiff's bar and the funders uh, react to this, uh, not just in the press, but what's their next move? Is this going to open up the floodgates to U.S. style class action litigation in the country? Yeah, I think there's two parts to the two parts to the answer to that question. First of all, is that we we have got a number of uh, antitrust class actions that are have been issued and are in abeyance, waiting for the Supreme Court. Uh, it, it's ruling on the standards to be applied. And those cases can now proceed. And those are cases in the trucks cartel, foreign exchange, um, and, and a couple of other cases as well. But more broadly, I do think that the impact of this decision is to really encourage more class actions of this nature. Uh, now, we don't yet know whether or not this Merrick's you know, MasterCard case will be certified. Uh, because as you say, you know, it's been remitted to the CAT with the direction that the CAT now apply the criteria and the approach to the criteria that the Supreme Court right. have said. It, it, it is possible that they will refuse, but the, the clear indication from the Supreme Court is to take a permissive approach. Yes. Um, I'll, I'll make one final comment on, on, the, on, on what they said as well, is that um, I mentioned there was a commonality test. There was also the suitability test. Yes. And one of the very important parts of the decision is where they discuss what does that mean? Is suitability an abstract assessment having reference to the criteria and the rules, or is it uh, in contrast? Is it, is, it, is, it, is suitability a question of class actions versus individual actions? And the way the leading judgment came out was it is, a, it is a, an assessment of which is more suitable um, collective actions, class actions, or individual actions. And, you know, there are, for very large cases, um, you know, it's hard to make an argument that it's not suitable because of the economy, you know, the, the judicial saving and having all these large uh, cases held together. Um, and, and so that's a fairly controversial part of the decision and, again, militates towards a permissive approach. Well, it seems to me that the big takeaway with the Merrick's decision is that the underlying standards have a lot of, like you say, permissiveness, I would say, 
flexibility, which could create potential mischief for future cases. And we've seen, uh, unfortunately, that track record play out here in the U.S. when it comes to class actions, where it's really about the fees for the lawyers and it's not necessarily a meaningful recovery for the claimants. But uh, your, your points are all very well taken. Um, you know, we've talked about competition law and antitrust-related claims. You know, does this, does this spread into other areas? Like, I know data, data privacy and data protection has been a, a significant issue um, in Europe with the GDPR and certainly here in California, um, in the United States. Uh, do you see other lines of litigation developing as a result of this? Yeah, very much so. Um, and data protection class action has been the other area in the UK um, over the past year, uh, just over, uh, for, been going on for just over a year. It's been an area of getting huge attention. And, and so GDPR introduced across Europe uh, a set of, of, of regulations and rules. And there are, there are elements of the GDPR that speak to direct redress and ability to seek damages for breach of data protection law. Yeah. But we, it didn't lead to an avalanche of collective proceedings because most of the way it's been implemented across Europe has been on an opt-in basis, whereby the claimant law firm will advertise and say, and, and it's been predominantly from data breaches, and they'll advertise on a no-win, no-fee basis and ask people to join the claim you can have very low participation rates where the individualized losses are low. But in October last year, uh, and this is where the, the big news has been uh, again in the UK in our Court of Appeal, in a claim called Lloyd and Google, the English Court of Appeal approved the use of what we call the representative action mechanism and mm -hmm. permitted that to be used for that case. That's a case being brought on behalf of 4.4 million people against Google. And that got a lot of people's attention because the representative action mechanism is not very well known even amongst English lawyers. It's been around since the 1870s. I actually think it's a, I think class actions originally are an import from an export from England to the US, believe it or not. I think that is the genesis of US class actions. But part of the reason that the English litigators don't know of it much is it hasn't been used very much. It's never really got going. It has a single requirement. Um, it has a single element to suitability, and that is, it is solely a commonality test. And it requires that class members and the representative have the same interest, which is, of course, much narrower than same, similar, or related. And the English courts have always policed that requirement very tightly. Mm -hmm. But this is what changed in October last year, um, where the Court of Appeal decided that in relation to these people that were in this class and what had been happening he here was that they had had their browser-generated information. They were iPhone users and um, their uh, smartphone users and their, their data had been taken by Google. Um, you know, there's, this is, these are the allegations anyway, without their consent, without their knowledge. And... The Court of Appeal ruled, first of all, there's two elements to the ruling. First of all, ruled that loss of control of data in of itself sounds and damages. You don't need to prove uh, pecuniary or financial losses that you may get with a data breach and your credit card data goes, and you don't need to prove distress. The mere loss of control of your data in of itself sounds and damages. And then the second finding was that um, that loss of control of data 
all of the all of the members of the class had the same interest in that loss of control. And then, you know, bingo, this class of 4.4 million people is suitable for the representative action uh, mechanism. Now, that's got a lot of attention. It's not a data breach case. And, and, and as a result of that, we have seen some very, very large claims issued. Uh, subsequent to that, again, Salesforce, Oracle, YouTube, etc. And they're, and they're not just data breaches, I say. They're, they're what we call data misuse claims as well. Right, right. Well, Kenny, we could go on and on and on talking about this, but I want to be respectful of your time. I think it's safe to say that there, as I, as I began this podcast, that there is trouble brewing in Europe, uh, certainly in the UK, but we haven't really even scratched the surface of the EU collective action um, directive that were a collective uh, redress directive uh, that just got approved by the parliament. Uh, perhaps that's for another day, but there really seems to be a lot of moving pieces when it comes to class action litigation. Uh, some concerns, certainly, at least from the business community perspective. So, Kenny, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, really appreciate your insights to our listeners. Again, Kenny Henderson with CMS. Uh, he's a fantastic defense lawyer really understands what's happening with the merits case, but also in all types of class action litigation that is developing across the European continent. So with that, thank you again, Kenny, for joining us. Be safe, be well. Thanks, Harold. Good to speak today.